Welcome back. This is episode four of the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett, and I'm here joined by, remotely, by lightning protection expert, Alan Hall. Alan, how you doing? Great, Dan. How you doing down in Washington, D.C.? I am doing well. It's been beautiful the last couple of days. It was almost 80 degrees yesterday, <laughs> oh, no. and it's, uh, it's really nice out now, but pretty windy. I think I'm going to probably get a, get a run in after the podcast is over, but... But yeah, it's uh, still a ghost town, which I think is the right thing to do. But uh, how's Williamstown? Is it warming up there yet? No. In fact, your windstorm is our snowstorm. It's supposed to snow tonight between one and three inches. Yikes. So tomorrow <laughs> tomorrow would have been a snow day for the kids not to go to school. But obviously, they're home already, so that's out the window. But we have not reached spring yet. We're still a couple good weeks away from real spring. Yikes. It's, uh, yeah. Well, you know, as we talk about weeks away from anything right now, there's only like one thing we're all wondering how many weeks away it is, which is when does this, you know, this whole thing start to end? And got any, got any predictions? Yeah. I think we're talking about middle of May. And just listening to some news last night and uh, some airline talk. Over the last couple of days, it seems like, at least in the United States, you may see some activity and some people returning to work and being a little more productive um, starting beginning in May. And then it slowly, gradually increases where we bring people back and get things going again. I, I was just at a one of our customers' facilities earlier today, and I think it was roughly 20% of the people there. And that it's been that way for a couple of weeks, but they're also thinking – Maybe next week, you know, a couple more people come back. Not huge percentages, but yeah. um, as things have leveled out, at least around us, they're probably going to bring some of them back. Yeah, so as we check up on the airline industry, there's a, a couple new news stories uh, just recently. So Boeing and Airbus are both yeah. uh, closing some factories down, at least temporarily. You know, Airbus in Alabama, they're not laying, they're not laying off their employees. They're going to have their jobs back, it sounds like, but they're just heading mm. home for right now so they're furloughed i guess but um yeah and then german uh german wings which is i guess the low the low budget airline from uh, lufthansa overseas yes sounds like they're yeah. shutting them down for good and just sort of consolidating with their overall bigger brand so do you expect more of too this? many airplanes yeah i mean is this a I was listening to another podcast earlier today and they were talking about auto industry brands that there's at one point like 110 different auto manufacturers, like brands like Chrysler, Ford, Jeep, <laughs> um, yeah. and like economic downturns like this can sort of just eliminate some of the uh, ones we don't need necessarily. Do you feel like that's happening here in aviation? Yeah, downturns have predicted winners and losers. Uh, if you have enough cash stored away and you have uh, an ability to quickly scale back up, you're going to be a winner. If you don't, you're you're going to be gone. Uh, and you saw that in the aircraft industry in the United States uh, through, if you look into the late 60s and early 70s, there was a lot of uh, small aircraft manufacturing, a lot of more aircraft manufacturing, Douglas Aircraft, McDonnell Douglas was still around, um, yeah, uh, there was a lot more aircraft manufacturers, a lot of them left over from sort of World War II era. And as the economy went bad and the oil prices shot up, those industries collapsed. And so there's a, there's a lot of those smaller aircraft companies either got consolidated and some of the big ones merged over time. Um, it, it's a common occurrence. The, the thing that you know we're looking for now is that the 
some of the other players that were sort of mid-sized, do they become bigger? Like, do the Embraers become bigger? Or do the, uh, um, uh, you know, Bombardier has become smaller recently because of their financial restructuring. Hopefully they can make it and make it through this uh, bad period. And that, that's one of the companies that's probably on the bubble right now, unfortunately. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's, it's sometimes just bad timing that plays into this. There's really not a lot of predictability for in this particular case. It isn't like you could see a World War One or World War Two coming about and prepare for it. This is something that has been unexpected. And so if your company was shaky to begin with, it may be a struggle to get back out. Hopefully the, the governments step in a little bit. Um, hopefully the Canadian government steps in with Bombardier. They have already. But it really kind of provides some security around that. Uh, this is thousands and thousands of highly technical jobs. You really don't want to lose them because it's going to be hard to recreate them. Yeah. And so I, I've got another article here pulled up, and it's it's about parts manufacturers. And there's a, an interesting quote where one of these executives says, you know, we don't earn money on the first installation on a new plane, but on the life of our products right. over 20 years. Yeah. If planes don't fly, we don't sell spare parts, and our products don't create a need for maintenance. So Speak a little bit on the yeah. the parts because everyone's talking about airliners, right? Right, right now the right. everyone's thinking about uh, Boeing and and Airbus, like the manufacturers, but also Southwest and United and American, the big airlines. But talk about yeah. the uh, the parts because I mean, how many parts are in an aircraft? Like a million, thousands, a crazy huge number. Uh-huh. Yeah, so yeah, thousands. How is it affecting that industry? Uh, the parts manufacturers have a lot of them have have shut down and closed. Uh, they did that about a week or so ago, uh, where there just there was no demand for product, and they had stocked stocked the shelves enough where they had enough of a buffer. I think there's just sort of two plays into that right now. First is that the number of airplanes are going to be coming back online is going to be as many as when they shut down. So this, you know, we're going to be probably at fifty percent, seventy five percent for a while in terms of number of airplanes that are flying. So the the repair market's going to be slower also, which you're going to be selling 50 to 75% of what you were usually selling in terms of repair parts. Uh, it it has a, a, a real trickle-down. Uh, people don't like that term, but it's what it is in aircraft. There's a trickle-down economy in aircraft, which which is um, how Boeing goes, how Airbus goes, how some of the big players go. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people behind that that are providing parts, not only to Boeing and Airbus, but also in the aftermarket side. That really hurts. And obviously, Boeing has a, a, and Airbus also have a strong aftermarket sales where they're selling parts for, to repair their aircraft. And so the, do the power plant makers, the Pratt & Whitney's, that are the Rolls Royces of the world, um, also are selling parts like that on the aftermarket it really hurts because it, it's true. A lot of their profitability comes from selling parts and support after the sale of the aircraft. It's very similar to the way you bought a car back in the 1970s or 80s. Um, there was a real connection between you and the and the automotive manufacturer. So if I had purchased a Ford, I was probably going to. A lot of people did probably went to go buy Ford repair parts, authorized. Ford repair parts, not just uh, generic parts for it. Mm-hmm. Aircraft tend to be more than that model still. So there's a, a, a big profit margin center there that needs to be fed to keep the airlines, well, to keep the airlines running and also keep the aircraft manufacturers profitable. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. And, and, and you wonder sometimes what the economics is. 
everything you know prices over the years keep getting pushed lower and lower as there's more and more competition yeah. and that's where you you think yeah. like yeah a lot of these companies are probably making it up on the back end over the again like the life of a car yeah. that maybe they're trying to make a little more affordable but they know they'll sell you know more radiators or whatever down the road so that makes sense it, it was very yeah it was very common having worked for a number of aircraft sort of business aircraft manufacturers that when they contracted out uh for a supplier to provide a component for the aircraft that the aircraft manufacturer wasn't paying full price for that part in a sense mm-hmm. uh, they re- the aircraft manufacturers would really push down on pricing and make the aircraft uh, component supplier participate as a partner, quote unquote partner, even if it wasn't a partner, yeah. it wasn't a great financial partnership because uh, the aircraft manufacturers tended to pay for all the non-recurring expenses, which means the engineers that uh, uh, were at the supplier, they used to basically pay for the engineers to design the thing and cover all the testing costs that seemed to be part of it but the actual purchase of the component was was driven down a lot uh in the in the thought that a supplier would make it up on quantity Hmm. that they this this product be going on for 30 years to be building replacement parts for the next 50 years so they were looking way down the line and becoming profitable and it's really hard to do that if there's an aircraft program that exists right now um, that's going through certification, it's going to be hard for them to conceptually say, you know, with the downturn, I'm, I'm going to delay my my payment period. It's going to get shoved off to the right a year or more. The economics get really funky when that happens, and a lot of suppliers will go back to the aircraft manufacturer and say, hey, look, this is no longer a, a even remotely profitable thing for us. We're just break-even or we're losing money, and they'll bail. They'll just stop work. Hmm until the aircraft manufacturers either throw them some cash or renegotiate. So there's going to be a lot of horse trading. Uh, there's going to be a lot of horse trading going on from those uh, lower-level suppliers and mid, the mid kind of the Tier 2, Tier 3 suppliers, all the way up to the Tier 1 suppliers. They're all going to be renegotiating and trying to get back to profitability because the economic models they had really just got thrown out the window. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you and I were talking uh, off camera a, a little bit about testing some of these new parts, whether it's uh, against lightning strikes yeah. or, or otherwise, and trying to find the balance between yeah. under testing, over testing, and overbuilding, underbuilding. Yeah. Um, can you speak yeah. a little bit about that and, and how these parts manufacturers then can find the balance? Yeah, so there's, there's, um, I always try to frame it as let's look at what the safety requirements are and let the requirements then flow down to what we need to go do. A lot of times when uh, a company calls us and says, hey, we've got a component, we need to go test it. Um, The first thing I ask is, well, okay, what does it do? And then what role does it play in the aircraft? If it doesn't perform correctly, does it crash the airplane or is it just a nuisance? What level of criticality have you assigned to this thing? And it's surprising a lot of times, I bet it's probably 75% to 80% of the time right now, the engineer that's designing the equipment doesn't really know what the criticalities of the functions that that piece of equipment provides. So I'll say, hey, go back and look. Somebody in your organization has defined it. Usually it's a reliability person that has created a hazard assessment, what we call a functional hazard assessment, that just says, if this box does X, 
here's the result. And this is what effect it has on the aircraft. Everything else after that is how we test it or how we, how we design it and test it. Uh, so if, a, if a, a component can go wrong and crash an airplane, we would define that in the lightning world. We define it as a, a level A piece of equipment or level A system. Um, and then we go off and run certain tests to make sure that that doesn't happen. And at certain, even at certain lightning levels, so the lightning levels, particularly for electronic boxes, will change based on the, upon the criticality. So there's a consequence to all that. Uh, if you, and a lot of times the engineers go, well, the box just has to work. It can't have any upsets, can't, can't go wrong, can't fail passive. It's just got to work all the time. Well, that's great. I mean, that's a, that's a great sort of first cut design philosophy that it should work. Yes, I'll, I'll grant you that. But that means there's going to be added cost, weight, complexity added to that piece of equipment if you don't need it. And so it's a better path is to look at what the criticalities are, what the functions are, look at the overall design from that standpoint, and then come in and design it and then come in and test it. It's going to save a, a bucket loads of money and, and countless hours of engineering time if we do that sort of first look at it from a safety standpoint. That's a, And what we're seeing right now uh, what I see a lot of is if you, the, the engineers just don't know because they haven't really been through that process before. And, and it does result in less expensive, more efficient designs if we take a look at the criticality first. Hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. So what do you think to improve this in the industry going forward? I mean, what, what systems need to put, be put in place or they need more personnel that sort of help with this? Or what do you think needs to happen? So here's here's the or at least how it was over the last 10, 15 years, what did, did happen? There'd be a, a reliability group of very smart people and very studious people that are looking at failure modes of how this piece of equipment can go wrong and then creating these fault trees and analysis and generating all this paperwork. They were usually tossed into a corner somewhere and no one talked to them. So they were <laughs> kind of self-isolating. There's no one to go over there because it's, it's it, they're just a very unique, takes a very unique personality to go do that work. Mm-hmm. But they are the start of every aircraft program. And I always used to say, okay, time out. We need to go talk to reliability people and figure out what's going on. And it was amazing what the reliability groups could tell us about how the way that aircraft was supposed to operate. It made our lives so much easier. And I think uh, from a design standpoint, a lot of times, particularly on the electrical side, we need to kind of get out of our own cubicles and walk over to the reliability side and say, hey, what am I doing here? What what do I need this for? And and sometimes even push back on, on sometimes the reliability people are under-conservative, over-conservative. They haven't thought about particular ways that the the system may work or may not work that need to get incorporated into their work. So it's kind of a little bit give and take. But I always think in today's world, the fastest thing to do is to talk to a reliability engineer and and get the low down from them. There's SAE documents. Uh, there's plenty of SAE documents and, and some FAA documents that sort of walk through that process, but they're thick and they're comp- complicated. They're just very complex language in them. So for the novice, there's just no way to grasp what's going on. And so I use the reliability engineer as the translator between SAE, FAA, uh, lingo uh, to 
human. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the way I always looked at it. So, yeah, I think in in today's world, I think well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens on the 737 MAX because I, I do think this is probably one of the areas where they where they struggle was design engineer or flight test engineer to reliability person. Was that connection always there? Yeah, yeah. and that makes sense. And that, that's something I've been wondering, and you and I have chatted about that as well, which is everyone seems to have very specialized jobs within the aviation yeah. industry. Like you can't be expected to be yeah. an expert on avionics versus this versus that versus lightning or anything else so right how do you guys sort of communicate between each other i mean is that a big a rampant problem <laughs> it's clickish i would say it's clickish this uh electrical engineers tended to hang out with electrical engineers uh pilots definitely hanging out with pilots pilots don't talk, don't really usually talk to anybody besides yeah, maybe power stay, plant stay engineers or yeah Right, yeah, back out, back off, nerd. Right, uh, yeah, it's very clickish. It's it's sort of high schoolish in a sense, but in a professional high school sense, it's, it's, it's everybody's professional. It isn't like there's some pers- there's not huge personality difference. You know, a flight test engineer, a pilot, quite honestly, isn't much doesn't have is not much different in personality as the mechanical engineer designing some component. Uh, but they because they wear a blue flight suit, uh, the flight test people stand out in their own little club over there uh i think the the key for management and particularly uh chief engineers and a lot of times there aren't any chief engineers in some of these programs but there should be the chief engineers are there to kind of kick those doors down and yank key people into the room that uh, i've noticed that as being a real driver on successful aircraft programs is pulling in and I always say it's it's roughly a dozen people. Maybe on a larger aircraft program, it's probably more. But the overall direction, the overall design, the overall performance of an aircraft can be done in a room with about 12 people. 12 different different uh, design sections, so to speak, like aerodynamics, uh, environmental control systems, uh, electrical power, um, avionics right so you can kind of break them down into normal groups there but it's about 12 if you get 12 really good people who know their stuff they also tend to know how they interact with the other other 11 around the table if those 12 people are all together and are the best you can find the aircraft will do just fine you'll get the certification and get it done if you have holes in that group uh, what i have seen is aircraft struggle to get done because you just need it's it's it was similar to what i've been watching lately which is some of the original work building some of the apple computer stuff and it's essentially what I mean, even apple today they just put a, they get a room full a room full when i say room full maybe 10 20 people tops of uh, really smart people in their particular aspect and they just jam them all together and say work it out it, it does make a difference uh, when they do that. If they if they don't talk to one another, which I've seen it more recently in some of these aircraft companies, I don't think the airplane is as efficient. If they make it a certification, I don't think the aircraft is as efficient or as good a performer as it could have been. That's the difference. Yeah, and, and this kind of reminds me, so I was reading up about Boeing and some of their 737 problems, and I guess when they were bought by, were they bought or they bought, out whether it was mcdonald douglas or 
Um, this is, yeah. you know, in a while ago. Yeah, and so they were used to doing everything essentially in house prior to then. Like Boeing controlled mm. pretty much everything in their in their little yeah. ecosystem, and then suddenly the new CEO yeah. says, "Well, we can we can lower costs. We can do things a lot differently." And we can do it the McDonnell Douglas way. Yes, exactly. And yeah. uh, suddenly they're getting parts from all over the world and they're having communication problems. And they're suddenly, they went from a company that never missed deadlines. You know, that was be like a mortal sin for, you know, Boeing to miss a deadline to <laughs> yeah, missing deadlines by a year, you know, 18 months. Yeah. And yeah. so is, is that mm-hmm. sort of like the climate now? I mean, is our, our planes, is that just how they're manufactured today? Just pieced together through, from throughout the world? Uh, they are, but it also depends on what the, where the strengths are. And a lot of it today is still, uh, who you have worked with in the past and then putting them on the new program. So if you've been successful with a company on a previous project, you're going to drag them onto the next project sort of thing. So there tends to be history that way. Uh, I don't think... Yeah, so I think you raise a really good point. And the, and the, and the point is, like, at what point you have a really good system in place and then you bring in outside and it kind of goes goes away. I've watched that happen because aircraft companies have merged over time. I'll give you the one example. My first example of this is when um, Beach Aircraft was acquired by Raytheon and then later sold by Raytheon. The cultures were just totally different. Raytheon was making dishwashers and missiles and a whole variety. They were like the kind of a GE type of corporation. And they bought an aircraft company. And I'm not even sure why they bought it, but they they bought it. And it was really just two different cultures coming together, Raytheon being based on the East Coast, Beach Aircraft always being in Wichita, Kansas. There are differences in personalities and the way people get things done and the way they communicate to one another on the East Coast versus this sort of the heartland that led to a culture shock between the two and it just never really clicked not to say anybody was wrong in that situation i don't think so obviously it comes down to personalities at the end but uh tying together two different cultures like that and i'm not saying uh, not culturally speaking like country speaking but just uh two different way or way companies have organized when you mash two of them together or one eats the other yeah. it's hard it's really hard to 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 change the way things have been in place for and beach aircraft have been in place for 50 years or more it's really hard to change that culture with a with something else it would be very similar um it'd be very similar to a you know a high-tech company buying an automotive company right so if tesla bought general motors talk about culture shock i mean that those two would never ever be able to come together that way because there's just they just think about the world differently they see things out of a different lens that's that's what it was like at when raytheon and beach were kind of going at it yeah, I mean that's that seems like a really big struggle for all sorts of companies. I mean, you saw it on the Office, of yeah. the, you know the the, pop, the popular oh, television yeah. show, you know, when the two right. branches combine. Because you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, even the writers have seen it, right? So I always when we see the Office once in a while, I always think, man, it, it seems like they're prescient. They, 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 but they just have a pulse on culture. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, that that sort of thing happens all the time, or one company eats another, and then there's just that culture clash, and it creates a lot of tension, and and obviously it creates comedy. 
when you're in it, it's not. Probably it's not definitely funny. not a comedy. Yeah. No, it's a lot of sleepless nights. We're like, man, how are we ever going to do this? Uh, and there's really, uh, I haven't seen a lot of other ways to to do it. My, and my take on it is, look, if you're gonna if you're gonna buy a company, man, you gotta just bite the bullet, change the culture, get rid of people who don't go along with it, and move on. Yeah. You can't let it linger. You can't drag it on for 10 years in the hopes of, like, it's either we're all in this together or get out because we, we don't have time to waste time. We just don't have, we don't have any money to burn here. That's what it's like. That's what it should be like. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a, a huge challenge in any any business, any size business. I mean, you get yeah. different leadership styles and, you know, I'm sure yeah. you've been through it and all of us have friends who, like, get a new job and it seems great and then they just like don't get along with key managers or key players yep. and they're you know just in the opposite is just a struggle until they can find a good fit and then you start trying to do that mashing 2,000 person or more companies together uh, can be it's brutal crazy. it's brutal yeah it's a tough it's brutal it's brutal I don't I don't know if I've ever seen it work very successfully ex, uh, I just really haven't seen it done very successfully and, and, and the the ones that have that have had a chance at it are, are the ones that come in at a kind of cutthroat, like, all right, uh, this is the direction we're going. Whoever doesn't want to be here, get out. Yeah. And, 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 you know, have a nice life. Uh, it's, it's, that's brutal to be, to kind of watch that go on. I I was involved in one of those. Um, that's brutal to watch on because like good people, you know, like, dang, that guy is good or that, that uh, engineer is talented and they're walking out the door. We can't really afford that. But I think at the end of the day, you, what you kind of come to the conclusion of is pretty much everybody's replaceable. Yeah. Um, you just got to get the right personality in the slot. Yeah. And probably when, yep. you know, when a company buys, like say, you know, a big, big company buys like an offshoot company, like Amazon buys a, you know, a specialty manufacturer, like door, you know, like yeah. doorbell technology. Maybe they leave that company kind of, kind of alone, <laughs> you know, like they don't have to fold, fold yeah. them into their regular thing and let them kind of coexist. Like we own you, but here's, you can have your own house still. You can have your own apartment still. Yeah. Slowly bring you that in. Was, that seems like that works a little better sometimes. Yeah. It, the, uh, the t- okay, uh, I lived through one of those, uh, where the, the company was acquired and they were told, Hey, you're making good money. You're a good corporation. That's the reason that we bought you. We're going to leave you alone. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's, that did sort of happen. Uh, but then, you know, uh, other parts of the company struggle. They're sucking money out of the out of the corporation. They want to suck more. And they, not they want to suck money out. Maybe they want to pull more money out of the corporation. And they want more money out. And and they they, they all of a sudden they see this. Um, cash engine uh, machine going on and they want to grab hold of it because it's 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 profitable so no matter what you do or not and i mean and unless the ceo has come down and said you will shall not touch these this little company over here it's going to get tampered with it has to yeah. um because there's too many personalities at at the driving that ship they will start touching it they have to yeah it's like the it's like i'm on full pop culture quotes today but in the arrested development he always says, "Well, there's always money in the banana stand." <laughs> you always got that little, right. <laughs> that little, little profitable thing that you can always tap into. Be by yourself, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one's gonna bother you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, that's exactly um, it. I think we're gonna sign off for today. So, um, yeah. Thank you for listening today. Uh, obviously, 
This is the Struck Podcast. We are sponsored by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. So if you need anything, if you're a radome designer, um, if you're interested in learning more about how to protect your aircraft, definitely check us out at weatherguardaero.com. Check out our YouTube channel here where you'll see video replays of all of our podcasts, including uh, great short clips. If you need just like a quick, uh, quick hit of information, we have tons of those. And then uh, be sure to subscribe, share the show with a friend, and uh, tune in here next week. Alan, thanks so much uh, for being here. Yeah, thanks, Dan. We'll see you next week. Take care.